0: Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola uh, with the Sensible Medicine Podcast, and I'm so excited to have um, Bobby Yeh, who is a a professor of medicine at uh, Harvard and real uh, specialist, a a cardiologist and a specialist in outcomes research. And I'm excited to talk to him about our ways of knowing things in uh, medical uh, literature and medical evidence. So, Bobby, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, John. Really excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So you wrote um, a really uh, great paper just recently in circulation titled Bringing the Credibility Revolution to Observational Research in Cardiology. And um, this was an, I really love this paper. It's very short and it it discusses ways to make observational research better. And the reason why I got interested in it is because almost every week on this week in cardiology podcast, I'm reviewing Observational studies, um, as opposed to randomized trials, and I just I'm struck by the difficulty in the difficulty in getting good information from them. So what what made you write this, and and what was the I guess the overriding theme uh, behind this?
1: Yeah, thank thanks, John. You know i I've been thinking about observational research like you for a long time. Certainly, am a consumer of it, um, and for the past 15 years, you know, we produce a fair amount of observational research in our group. And one of the things that we're always tackling is how credible are these studies that we are doing or the ones that we're reviewing, Um, you know, and what are the factors that help us decide which ones are the ones that we are to believe and which ones are the ones that aren't. And, you know, I think, you know, this is really the culmination. This paper is, you know, one paper of, of many where we've talked and, I've written about this idea of like, where do we find the truth in observational studies and 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 how do we as a community really raise the bar for the quality for these studies? And I think you and I both know that sometimes these studies come out and just sometimes they don't seem like they 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 got it just right. Sometimes we we a couple of them, you know, you read a year and you're like, no, that's just not credible. Other than of them you feel like are are pretty solid but there's a whole group of people out there who i think um like you and me want to read these studies and have a better sense of 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 which ones are accurate and, and so how do we it was really emerged out of this idea that we've been working on for a while which is how do we make this field you know better more credible
0: and just step back for a moment and and tell the listeners about i mean what exactly is an observational study and versus other ways of of getting at Knowing things, what works and what doesn't work in medicine?
1: Yeah, it's important question. You know, in medicine, we really have had this luxury um that we've been able to design these carefully, careful experiments uh called randomized trials, which basically are a coin flip, you know, come up heads and you get treatment A, come up tails, you get treatment B. And through these careful experiments, I think we can tell. Uh, we can discern whether or not treatment A is better, worse, or equivalent, or or the same as treatment B. Um, But we don't have the luxury of doing those careful trials for every question that we want to know the answer to. So instead, in clinical practice, um, you know, I'm an interventional cardiologist, you're an electrophysiologist, I would say the vast majority of decisions that I make every day are not supported by one of these high quality randomized trials. It's instead with a little bit of experience. And then the, you know, the, the accumulation of all of our collective experiences forms sometimes can be, you know, form data data that we can analyze. And so we get these big observational, what we call observational, meaning they weren't part of an experiment. They were just how we all practiced in clinical care. And sometimes, you know, Dr. Mandrola gave treatment A and Dr. Ye gave treatment B, and the, the accumulation of all of these decisions, we can try to compare treatment A and treatment B as they were sort of given in practice. And that sort of comparison is what we refer to as an observational comparative effectiveness study. And the key challenge to that is, of course, we don't choose treatment A or B randomly. We sometimes do so on the basis of the things that we are observing or hearing from our patients. And therefore, those factors can, what we say, confound the comparison between treatment A and treatment B where you might find that treatment people who got treatment A did better than people who got treatment B, but it might not have anything to do with the treatment at all. It might have been just the fact that those patients who were selected to get treatment A were healthier or different in unmeasured ways compared to the second treatment.
0: That's excellent. And that leads me to my next question, which is in the first part of your paper, you basically describe the crux of the problem. What is the crux of the problem in uh, cardiovascular
1: observational research? The crux of the problem is exactly this problem of confounding. It's the problem that when we choose our treatments, you know, what's being asked of us as physicians is, is to not choose treatments randomly. You don't go to a doctor and say, you know, should I do treatment A versus B and and I hope they don't flip out a coin flip out a coin and do a coin flip and decide. You want them to choose on the basis of the wealth of their experience and knowledge. And so they're generally learning things about you and trying to discern the best treatment for you. And as a result of that, when you get your treatment, it is nowhere close to a coin flip. It's on the basis of some observable and experience-based reasons of that of that clinician in addition to your own feedback that you've given and your preferences. And so when you can't account for that, all of that expertise and patient preference issues in your data set, then you've got the problem where you may not be able to discern whether or not the differences you're seeing in the outcomes of people who receive different treatments were related to the treatment or between differences in the patients themselves. So that's really the foundation of the problem of these observational real-world comparisons
0: and and i mean am i wrong and am i wrong in suggesting i came into cardiology at the time when the there were just ccus and and uh, mi's weren't getting reperfused and and there were pvcs and the, the really the standard of care was to suppress pvcs and then all of the observational studies up until the up until the cast trial in 1991 suggested that pvcs are dangerous so we treat them and then it turned out that based on observational research um we were fooled and the same thing in my clinic uh in indiana back in the day we used to use hormone replacement therapy to tr- to do cardiovascular prevention and and this was i mean i i cite a meta analysis of more than 30 observational studies which all showed the same thing and so i had this sensation that i'm i'm so scared um of using Uh, these kinds of studies, even if there's one, two, three, four, five of them that all show the same thing, because of the history of of the things that I learned when I came into uh, practice.
1: Yeah, those are all, I think, you know, historically important examples of how where observational evidence got it wrong. And when we finally conducted the large, powered, rigorously designed trials, the experiments that eliminated the confounding issues, then we found something different. And those are terribly important. I think that they have really shaped how we think about evidence in cardiology, really in all of medicine. Um, But I think there's also times when observational studies have gotten it right. The most famous example, probably, the reason we know that smoking causes lung cancer is on the basis of, I would say, very well done, observational studies. And so there are observations that can be made done to establish what we call causality meaning that that you know this treatment led to this effect and or this risk factor caused this amount of harm or benefit and those causal relationships are really important and I think can be discerned but we need to do so with very great care. I think that's the challenge. All
0: right, one of the one of the next uh, lines of questioning One of the things that you did in the paper is you cited a very interesting piece by Miguel Hernan, an expert in causal inference. And what I took from you and from him is that um, when we do observational research, when we try and look back at at comparisons that are not random, we're actually trying to figure out cause. And one of the ways, uh, one of the things that happens is that editors and authors really take out causal language from it and they create and they say, this is an association. We're not saying it's causality, but you and Miguel seem to be arguing that causality is actually the purpose and we
1: shouldn't really hide from that. That's right. You know, and I think, you know, Miguel has said it best in that original paper where he calls causality the sea world is a word it's the word that shall not be spoken um and you know now let me say first that not all observational studies have the intent good good. right but observational comparisons often do and when they do um i think he has argued and i agree strongly that we ought to be explicit about the intent of those studies and not shy away from it i would say that what what's happened is because we have avoided causal language even though we intend a causal sort of uh we have a causal goal we avoid the causal language it it takes everybody off the hook you know it 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 lowers the need for me to prove my causal case to you it lowers the editors and the readers need to really read skeptically and say, well, they're not really trying to establish causality. So I don't really need to dig deeply and, and, and find where the causal kind of argument has holes perhaps. And it, what I said in the paper is it it sort of relegates, you know, everything to the lowest common denominator of not having to really reach the high benchmark, the high, you know, clear the high bar that should be established and cleared in order to really make causal claims. And I say, you know, I, when I look at these papers and I've said this in lectures before, when we say association, we kind of say it with like a little wink and a nod, association with this treatment with with outcome. What we really wanna know is what was the treatment effect of that treatment? And was it causally related to that outcome when we do these comparative studies? So. I think by, by avoiding the language, we've just in a way been disingenuous about it. And we've let every part of the research chain kind of off the hook.
0: Almost every study that I read uh for prepping for the podcast that's an observational study will say association. And then you know, I was reading your work and it kind of a little bell went off in my head and yeah, and and thought, well, maybe we really yeah, that that's maybe the wrong way because who cares if there's an association, what we really want to know is if there's a, if there's a causality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And, and, you know, it, it, I think also being upfront about our causal intents will separate those other studies, which may not have a causal intent. I mean, there are times when I think associations are important. Um, when you're doing prediction, sometimes you, prediction is is, an, is a type of associative study where maybe you're not so concerned about, you know, whether or not these risk factors are causing the outcome of interest, but you're certainly interested in identifying the patients who are at risk for these outcomes. And that's that's a different goal, and we should be able to separate these goals very clearly. And when we really want to know, does treatment A lead to a certain benefit or harm, we ought to be explicit about that intent.
0: Um, Just, just. I'm going to move to the next chapter, but just let me ask you: Do you ever look at a problem um, and just say, "This, there's no way to remove the selection bias; we we just can't do it, and would be better not to do it"?
1: We've in fact done that several times.
0: Okay. Uh, and Is we there have something on published- the top of your head that uh, that you could give as an example. I'm well, curious. yeah,
1: absolutely. We we published a paper um, within the past two months. Uh, It was a paper in JAMA Cardiology. It was a collaboration we did with the FDA. And we did an examination of whether or not mechanical circulatory support devices uh, used to treat cardiogenic shock in patients with heart attacks. So low blood flow states after big heart attacks, these mechanical support devices, these pumps that help sustain blood pressure in these times of crisis, whether or not those things are harmful or helpful. And we tried to do them in an observational data data set of Medicare beneficiaries. Now, this is something that the FDA actually asked us to do with them. They were extraordinarily interested in this clinical question. They were also extraordinarily interested in whether or not the methods could achieve a causal inference for this very challenging clinical question. And this happens to be an area where we have almost no randomized data. Very hard to conduct randomized trials in this space. When we looked at the data, and you can imagine that, you know, I put some of these devices in, uh, in my job as an interventional cardiologist, and who do I put these devices in, uh, these mechanical support devices? I put them in when I think the patient is not doing well. Um, I do so knowing that we don't have good randomized data. But I'll say that as an interventional cardiologist, what we do observe is that for sure a patient's blood pressure will be more sustained if I put a device like this in. It will allow me to get a patient to a, to the ICU and have a conversation with the family. Um, so we put them in for these reasons, even not knowing whether or not we're providing long-term benefit. But I do also know that when I choose them, it's because I think things are going badly for the patient. That type of choice is so hard to quantify in an observational data set, what is it about that patient that made me think this is going awry? It might be the blood pressure is just a little softer, it's a little lower than I would like it to be. Could be that I observe the patient is modeling, you know, kind of like doesn't have a good skin color. Could be that their urine output is declining, which means that the kidneys are not getting sufficient blood. All of these things make me think this patient isn't doing as well as I would like. Maybe I ought to put the device in. And in the absence of all those things, the patient talking to me, they look good. They're young and healthy. Maybe I won't put one of those devices in. And if you can't capture all of that clinical nuance, you will fail in that observational comparison. And we found in our analysis with the FDA, so many subtle signals in the data that we were failing some of those Un, really untestable assumptions, but you can see signals of it. And actually our conclusion in this paper was that we couldn't conduct a credible observational paper that had causal interpretability. That was the, actually the primary conclusion. Usually when those papers are published, what you get is this, this device was associated with harm and that's 90% of the paper. And in the last second to last paragraph of the paper you get, oh, and by the way, the limitation of this paper is that there might be some confounding here. Maybe you can't really be sure that this is causally, uh, causally interpretable. We flipped that on its head. We said the primary conclusion of this paper is that it's not causally interpretable, not just a limitation after we've had a long discussion about the harms of this device, but the primary conclusion is that causal interpret interpretability cannot be achieved. And, you know, in, in, only in you know I think in the future maybe we just won't pursue that study but we wanted to really put that study out there as an example of how it's okay to say that it's okay to to realize your limitations of your methods don't allow you to support a causal interpretation
0: yeah that's a it's a great example and a great comment but I what do you say to this comment I i read so many observational studies that are really confounded and then and then way buried in a discussion is that line where they say that you know there's there's a this is observational there's strong uh strong likelihood of selection bias and then i then i think to myself as a consumer of medical literature then what why even do it
1: yeah yeah i mean i those studies really bother me we've written about studies like that you know i I can think of another example this is probably gosh going on seven eight years ago now where there was a study out there that to us looked remarkably confounded in fact and we and maybe we'll touch upon this later in the podcast we analyzed the data in a different way to use a quasi-experimental approach and we found uh you know what they found was this class of devices uh appeared to reduce mortality. Um Tuss clearly confounded. In our study, looking at it a different way, absolutely no impact on mortality as we anticipated. And what we wrote in a letter to the editor, and these two articles were published, they said the exact opposite. They were things, our study and theirs. They were published in the same journal within two months of one another, with no reconciliation of why two papers that said the opposite could be published at all nevertheless in the same journal without you know somebody saying wait what are we supposed to believe here and so we we felt like compelled to write a letter to the editor that this was we thought frankly editorial mismanagement at a journal and we said you know of that paper you know and and it you know, it it sounded quite critical what we wrote, and we really, frankly, work being critical. We said, you can't have a limitation of your paper be actually the most likely rationale for the <laughs> result. It, it can't be the most likely explanation for your results. If 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 the limitation is the most likely explanation for your result, that is the result. The limitation is, in fact, the primary conclusion, and then that paper ought not potentially to be published. So, you know, I feel strongly like you about papers. And I, and unfortunately, we see papers like that, not uncommonly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to bring up uh, Brian Nosek's work. But I mean, he he has shown very nicely that you can have one data set and recruit different people with statistical expertise and analyze it in different ways and get slightly different results, not so much diametrically opposite. But when something is that Sensitive to the analytic method, it um, really—I mean—it speaks to the weakness of the of the methodology, or or maybe the inability to answer that question.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, it opens up a whole new discussion on on just analytic decisions that we make and how they influence certainly the the magnitude of treatment effect. And you know, to be fair, there are some people who have looked at the NOSIC article and remarked about how much consistency there was in some some of them. So it's like even the same data can be viewed like differently depending on the eye of the beholder. Um, But I think our human nature is to anchor on the sort of magnitude of treatment effects, you know, like how much did it benefit um, as opposed to more kind of more qualitative um, sort of assessments of treatment benefit and harm. And I, I think through different lenses, one can interpret even that NOSIC paper as having a different sort of conclusion underlying.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the NOSIC paper, a lot of the NOSIC paper um, turned on whether you use 0.05 as a magical, uh, as a magical barrier. Uh, Let me move on to, I mean, it sort of segues into the next question. Is part of your part of your article was, and and you've written about this and, and I have questions about it. Is discerning differences in observational, uh, the the quality, the different, discerning differences in the quality of observational research. And so not all observational research is the same. And that's sort of, I guess, the corollary to that is how much does this emulate a a target trial? And I know you're a big advocate of high quality observational research, and tell us why um, that is.
1: Well, you know, I I think we, as a starting point, um, can't have a randomized trial to answer every question that we need to know the answer to. So in a perfect world, we would conduct far more experiments than we do, and we wouldn't have to rely on observational data. But there are just too many questions that arise in clinical medicine that require um, that would require just altogether too many trials to, to that could feasibly be conducted. So the starting point is that I think we need observational science as part of our um, as part of our data generating and and um, as part of our kind of empirical framework. Um, you know, and so that's the starting point. So then next is we also have to recognize that not all observational observational studies are the same. Even as a starting point, independent of getting into the research quality, not all the questions are the same. The questions, and that's probably the most important part of this actually, is that some questions are much more prone to this challenge of confounding than others. And that's not something that a statistician can tell you, actually. If I'm asking a question in electrophysiology, John Mandrola can tell me whether or not that study is more likely to be confounded better than Miguel Hernan can, it turns out, which is not something that I think we all appreciate. And what I mean by that is that clinical expertise, the people who make the clinical decisions are probably the best people to tell you what are the factors that drove their clinical decision-making, and therefore, what are the factors that might confound an analysis? Now, the people who can best tell you the methods to deal with certain types of confounding are certainly the causal inference experts. And we have uh, worked with many of them, including you know Dr. Anand and have great respect for them. And what's been challenging, I think, is the conversation between these two groups. Uh, it's usually not the same people who have these same bodies of expertise. Uh, it's often people not in these two groups who, you know, they don't, collaborating enough on, on papers. And I think that it's this sort of in between these areas where we get breakdowns in, in the observational science when we don't combine sufficient methodological and clinical expertise for the question being asked.
0: So the I guess, the, so the first component is to, to ask a reasonable question and content expertise does seem important for that. And I, I guess the second thing I would ask is, now um even if it's good question there's still the matter of of dealing with the the fact that randomization didn't make the choice that a, that a clinician yeah. made the choice and um and you have this data sheet and and all of these things that you can do to help match these two non-random groups and and some of it is 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 quite complex um and and i just i guess i would without getting too technical just explain to me and the listeners just how what are these techniques and and how do you know which ones to use and yeah. can you just use them all and and would that work
1: well there's this whole family of techniques that is commonly used in in medicine and um, and in other fields as well but but and and they go by different names and they all I would say and I'm probably gonna you know trigger any statisticians who are listening, but I will say that many of them rely on a similar set of assumptions. And the assumptions that they require are the ones that we've been talking about. That there are, it's it's called the no unmeasured confounders assumption. It's the fact that, um, that there are not factors that are driving clinical decision-making that are also prognostically important factors so, in other words, factors that are influencing clinical decision making, but also kind of tied to your outcome of interest, whether it's mortality, or, um, that there aren't things like that that aren't being measured. That you, you that if there are those factors, those confounders that exist, you have them perfectly captured in your data set, and whether or not, and you'll you'll hear names of regression, you'll hear names like propensity scores. You'll hear about inverse probability of treatment weights. You'll hear about an inverse probability of censoring weights. These are all ways of dealing with the fact that these two populations, people who got treatment A versus treatment B, are different from a starting point. And how am I going to make them look more like by adjusting for or accounting for the measurable differences between these groups? with measurable, measurable being the key word, once there are unmeasurable differences between the key groups, between the two groups, and then those factors, those unmeasurable differences are prognostically important, then basically the study is going to be subject to residual confounding and not be able to give you a reliable causal inference. Now, there are so many subtleties, I'm sure, uh, among all these different methods, but foundationally in medicine, most of the time, I'd say nine. The 9 studies out of 100 rely on this no unmeasured confounders assumption, which as a clinician, you know, is an extraordinarily high bar to sort of accomplish. To, to, to believe in that assumption sometimes, you know, defies credibility from the get-go, depending on the question being asked.
0: Maybe this is impossible to answer, but just put yourself, you're an expert on this, just put yourself in the position of a reader of a typical cardiology journal or just general medicine journal looking at it are there any i mean are there any like easy tricks or do you have to just rely on like an editorial or or some other expert or are there any like fast and frugal tips to say oh this is this is problematic
1: You know, one common scenario you'll see is that you'll look at the table one of an observational paper, and it will show you um, the differences between people who got one treatment versus the other. And if the starting point for your table one is those two groups look wildly different, then you ought to be highly skeptical going in.
0: But what about all those techniques to to match them and propensity match them?
1: Yeah, and they're so they're incredibly they're they're entirely dependent on you having measured all of those factors. And so they will take they will take two different populations that look entirely different and make them on paper look very similar. But when two groups differ by so many different characteristics, what it means is that physicians are discerning differences between who should get treatment A versus B and they're making a calculated decision here. They're not choosing anywhere close to randomly if these populations look different. And, and if, you're, if you just go by that notion that, hmm, physicians are making decisions here, which are really being guided by something that they're seeing, do I think that this data set captures all of those differences that they're seeing, can really get into the mind of the physicians and capture all those things? And if the answer is no, which often the answer is no, then, then I think you you your alarm bells should be up about the causal credibility of that. that what study. about
0: a couple, a quick, quick quick ones? What about if one group has three hundred patients and one group has thirty thousand? Does that yeah. does that seem problematic to you? Yeah,
1: sometimes, sometimes. I don't know if that in and of itself. Okay. To me, but but yet yeah, one has to be. Question, you know, why is it that one of these treatments only got, who are these 300 patients who got reserved this very special treatment? Sometimes it's because that treatment is only available in one place or it's only been available for a few months or something like that. But if that's a readily available treatment and it differs markedly from the other treatment in, in how it's delivered, you know, how invasive it is. Other factors, which you know are being driven by clinical decision-making, then then again, yeah, I, I for sure would be potentially quite skeptical of that.
0: And, and another quickie, how do you uh, consider, like if a study has 300,000 patients from a database, does that make it any less susceptible to a systemic bias?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that the size of the data set in my mind, influences the likelihood of confounding my 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 concern for confounding at all. Or decreases. What, or decreases it, doesn't increase or it dec- doesn't change it. You know, the likelihood of confounding is is again, it's taking that step back and really trying to get into the minds of the patients and the the clinicians who are making the decisions. The size of the data set only influences the the sort of narrowness of the confidence intervals or the precision or the 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 sort of the exactness of the study but it you can be exactly wrong in a large observational study uh as well you'll just you know but you'll have narrow confidence intervals you know so
0: you could have a hazard of 0.50 that's totally biased but the confidence intervals around that hazard might be very narrow
1: that's right that's right
0: what is the target trial we hear
1: a lot about that. Give us the thumbnail. Target on trial. So target trial emulation, emulation is this idea that the way that we should start out an observational study is by, uh, is to really think about what is the theoretical randomized trial that we would try to be cop, that we're trying to copy when we do this. And So it's really just a framework for thinking about observational studies. There are many people who say when when we talk about target trial emulation, they say, oh, that's what we always do. We've been doing that for decades. But then if you dig into it, you see where um, the formal application of the target trial thought process, target trial emulation thought process hasn't typically been done. And I'll say guilty as charged. We haven't done it every time we've done an observational study. This is something that, um, you know, that I learned about. You know, I would say in the past five years. Um and but it it, it has really concretized some of the, the real problematic things that we see in observational studies to me. And it's a really natural way to avoid the problem. So let me give you an example that, that sometimes happens which is which is uh this problem of immortal time bias, you know a favorite topic. I, I'm so on. glad you brought this <laughs> up. The Cheetos so- problem. The Cheetos problem, immortal time bias, is this idea that sometimes when we do observational studies, we find these dramatic benefits to treatment, and when we look at it, it's just it's it's from a total artifact of how we designed our observational study. So let me give you an example. There have been studies, observational studies for years, which have looked at um, whether or not if you present with a heart attack. And you have multiple vessels that have disease in them. Should you get just one of those vessels fixed, the one that's causing the problem of a heart attack? Or should you get maybe one of them, the main one fixed first? And then maybe a month later, you should get the second one fixed. And those are called staged procedures. And people have thought, well, maybe I should just treat the culprit lesion alone, which is the one that's causing the problem. Or maybe because I found this bystander, 80% blockage. I ought to treat that at some interval too, maybe when they're out of out of harm's way in this, this first heart attack, but I'll bring them back at 60 days and then treat the second one. So there've been these observational studies and they've looked at people who got treatment within the first, say, 60 days of all their vessels versus only people who got treatment of the first vessel at day one or day zero. And they found these whopping benefits of getting treatment within the first 60 days for all your blood block heart blockages and people said oh we ought to treat all our heart blockages within the first 60 days then and the problem with that study is that in order to get treatment at day 60 you had to live to day 60 and if that patient who i wanted to schedule at day 60 for my complete revascularization died at day 30 well, then they wouldn't have lived long enough to qualify for being in my complete revascularization arm. And I would just group them into the bucket of patients who only got their culprit lesion fixed. And so you actually can't die within the first 60 days if you get revascularization. If if in order to qualify for that group, you had to get complete revascularization within 60 days. And so this creates this problem of immortal time bias. And I sort of made fun of this idea by saying well like if you give you know anybody who eats cheetos at day 60 happens lives longer than people who don't eat cheetos at day 60 either and that's got nothing to do with the fact that cheetos is harmful or helpful to health but the fact that you had to live long enough to get it and so that problem is called immortal time bias and what target trial emulation says is well let me see if i were to design a randomized trial you know what would my groups look like Well, they certainly would not be groups that relied on you receiving a treatment at day 60. That's never how we would design a trial. We design a trial by assigning treatment at day zero, at time zero. And we say, you know, this is the intention to, this patient would be randomized to get complete revascularization within the first 60 days. And even if they didn't get it, they would be assigned to the group that they were assigned to at day zero. So it makes, this idea of target trial emulation makes very explicit what time zero is of your study, how you assign treatment, what are the sort of limitations of your outcomes assessment and follow-up, And you kind of go through this mental, and actually it's a, it's actually you're supposed you really should do it on paper, this exercise of what are the corresponding inputs to this to this observational study that you're doing, and how do they differ from this target trial? And when you go through that entire framework, you can avoid sometimes avoidable mistakes in design.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent description of immortal time bias, which comes up quite a bit. Now, two two final to- two final questions, and then we're almost done. But in the spring, JAMA published a a, a paper called "Emulation of Randomized Trials uh, with Non-Randomized Database," and I'm sure you're familiar with the with this paper. And they they my understanding of it is that first of all, these are experts in causal inference, right? So they're like the like the top top people. And they took 32 trials that they felt could be emulated, and then looked at insurance databases or Medicare databases, and 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 tried to emulate them using emulate the results of the trial using um, using um, non-randomized data, or observational data, and they were they were pretty good, but they weren't so good that you you wouldn't want to bet too much money. On whether it was emulated, and so I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, okay, they hand selected trials that they thought could be emulated, that they had the data, they're experts in the field, and I think they were like, they they were like seventy five percent emulation, and so you know, uh, uh, your friend and my friend on Twitter, Dr. Cohen, says that you know some randomized or some observational studies are correct, I just don't know which ones. And th- yeah. this kind of reinforced this idea. So I wanted you to comment on ha- what your take of that paper was. And I- I'll link yeah. to
1: it. Um, you're you're um, talking about the RCT Duplicate.
0: Yeah, RCT Duplicate Project. Um,
1: and um, and we do, you know, Sebastian Schneeweiss is a colleague here at, at Harvard and, and really is a causal inference expert. And I'll say that if, first and foremost, if we thought that 75% of observational studies were correct we'd be doing pretty well so as a as a starting point i think that study showed that you can do much better than what's probably out there when you do it the right way now would we have liked to see 90% you know concordance for sure um now i so there i mean there is a follow up exercise to be done from that study which is you know m- While they are causal inference experts, um, they are not necessarily subject matter experts in the clinical domains. And as I've said, you know, I think that this really matters a lot. Um, And I'd like to know whether or not the clinical subject matter experts can look at that group of trials and say, which are the ones you, which are the questions here that you would think would be more confounded than others? be really fascinating exercise. And I think my guess is that good clinical experts who had some understanding of what, uh, of methods would be able to identify the questions that they thought were more likely to achieve success than less likely to achieve success. So I, I still think that there it may be some um clinical evaluation that could go into this. I think that they were really making their assessments on the basis of, can we emulate these trials based on Data capabilities and availability, but not necessarily on how likely do I think this it, is this question to be confounded?
0: Yeah, I think one of the one of the most striking examples in their paper was that that they looked at paradigm HF, you know, sacubitril valsartan and, and heart yeah. failure, and of course this showed dramatic results in the randomized controlled trial, but they. Basically, had a null effect from the observational study, so it's yeah. it was really provocative to me uh, that you know again seventy five percent is good, but but that still leaves one in four times yeah. that you are wrong.
1: Yeah, well, well, let me just say all this also that it may not be true that they're wrong, um, right? So the it, it it may well be that you know, effect estimates in real world data in populations that aren't exactly like those ran, enrolled in randomized trials are more likely to be, not have the same effect size. So, you know, this was sort of ingrained in me like many years ago by my one of my mentors, you know, she said, and I said, I did this study this way and this study got a different answer. And she said, both could be right. Yeah. And, and uh, that's true also. So, you know, I think we take it that, that the RCT is the gold standard. And I think it was treated that way in, in RCT duplicate. But I mean, it it, re, it remains true that if you take a different population and you do a study, even a randomized trial, you might get a different result uh, from a randomized trial in a different population. So it's it, it'd be interesting to think about from that lens as well. But I hear your, your major point, which is, okay, well, we don't have, whether or not which one's right or wrong, we don't have perfect concordance. You'd like to see it higher. How do we get that number higher and, and you know I would say the, the glass half full uh interpretation of duplicate is I think if you asked how much concordance is there in the literature between observational studies and and, and what you would get in an RCT I don't think people would say 75 percent I think they would say much lower than that
0: yeah yeah uh, if we ever had a conversations with Bobby Y, we could do another thirty minutes on translating evidence from clinical trial environments to to real world data. But we 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 we'll leave that for another time. But uh, let me just ask you to close and and just say, what, what would be your what were your what would be your closing pitch for uh, observational research? And and if 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 you were the czar and 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 could change everything, what would you? What would you say or hope for the next five to
1: 10 years? Well, you know, one of the things that I spoke, I wrote about in this paper was that we in medicine, I think have been locked into this particular paradigm. It's like this lather, rinse, repeat cycle of how we're writing observational studies and how we're designing them. And we haven't followed closely enough advances in the adjacent fields. I I started out the paper talking about my friend actually and, and, and colleague, uh, a mentor josh angrist who we've been working with i've been working with for more than a, a decade who is a nobel prize winner in economics for his really advancement of causal inference methods in econometrics using techniques that we still despite these techniques having been around for a long time have not really fully comprehended or utilized and i i know my 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 writing about econometrics triggered some epidemiologists to really push back against this. And I'll just say, yes, we have also not looked sufficiently into the adjacent epidemiologic causal inference fields. This was not uh, meant to be a promotion of one particular discipline, but just the opposite, actually. What we need to do in medicine is look at the adjacent fields and borrow some of the rigorous techniques and methods. And we haven't done so, I think, because we just haven't been pushed to do it yet, or uh, haven't pushed ourselves to do it. And so my hope is that you know these fields are advancing beyond what we traditionally are doing in the literature. And so there are, you know I called it revolution within reach. It's within us to, to look to these adjacent fields, advance our methods, hold ourselves to a higher standards, in some cases, publish less, in other cases, publish more rigorously, Um, And if we hold ourselves to these higher standards, I I really do think, you know, ultimately I'm optimistic that we really can advance the field of observational science. I firmly believe that. Awesome. Bobby, thank you
0: so much for teaching me and spending this much time with me. It's very generous. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Okay.